Well, as Dan said, I believe earlier that we are in the third week of the series on Romans, where we're studying Paul's letter to the church at Rome that he wrote somewhere 57, 60 AD to this church. And last week we looked at chapters, the end of chapter one, two, and three, where Paul is really, as I explained, I believe it's like reporting on this largest lawsuit brought in the history of man. It's this conspiracy case where every human being on earth has conspired to overthrow God. And God has brought everybody into the courtroom and said, here's my case against mankind. And Paul's really reporting what it looks like. And those last two, those chapters two and most of three and all of one really is Paul's case and God's case against mankind. And Paul's conclusion is we're all guilty. None of us have escaped. All have sinned. All have fallen short. No one is declared righteous by observing the law. And he's made it very clear. And he says, really, the only way out is to throw yourself upon the mercy of the court. But, you know, in our society today, that happens all the time, right? There are all these laws that are written. When you think about it, in the very beginning, there was one law. Don't eat from that tree. And that got replaced by 10 and then explained by 613. And then it just kept growing from there because then there was the oral law that had to explain what all this meant. And over time, thousands upon thousands of laws have had to been added because... As human beings, we always try to find the loophole. We're always looking for the way out. You know, the man who's been uh, prosecuted for harassment is asked, were you ever alone in that room with that woman? And he says, no, I was never alone in the room with that woman. Figuring in his head that I was in the room, she was in the room, therefore I was not alone. No, I was not alone in the room with that woman. We're always looking for the loophole. You know, in this country, there have been efforts to like say, how many laws are there? How many laws are on the books? And it's estimated that maybe a little over 3,000, but then some say, whoa, 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 you don't, you don't get it. How about all the regulations that Congress puts in and all the regulations that we have to apply to the tax code? It's thousands upon thousands and hundreds of thousands of laws. But we're always seeking to find the loophole to get out of it. Well, today, that's what I believe we see in chapter 4. We see a man or a group of people that Paul is addressing, and it may be somebody specific, or it may be an argument that Paul is already saying, I know I've heard this objection before in my 20 years doing this. I know exactly what the next objection is going to be from this group of people. And it's going to be this loophole that, wait a minute, we're descendants of these ancestors in the Old Testament, so therefore... We have special dispensation. We have a special agreement and relationship to God. I think you're missing the point. We know somebody. And I don't think you're recognizing who we are and how special a people we are. We're different than this other group of people that you're prosecuting here. And so Paul is going to lay out this case to this group of people, and he does so in Romans chapter 4, verses 1 to 21. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to open them up electronic version, paper version. If you need one, raise your hand. Our ushers would be glad to bring you a Bible. It'd be a great way to write in that Bible, your, your own Bible, and make notes. Here's a hand here. That'd be great, a couple of them, actually. Uh, and you can write in the margins. Write in the margins that we give you, the Bibles that we give you. That way somebody else comes along and looks at it, and they can read what you've written. It's a great way that we can learn. And so to answer this question, what Paul does, he does something very brilliant. He says, okay, so you want to appeal back to your ancestors. 
Let's go back to your ancestors. If you remember back in chapter 3, Paul said their ancestors, the prophets and the law, the whole Old Testament, prophesied and spoke about this righteousness by faith. That it's not a righteousness by the law, but a righteousness by faith. And all the Old Testament testifies to that. So let's go back to the Old Testament. Let's go back to your book. You are children of the book. Let's go back and let's pick one of your ancestors. And he decides to pick Abraham. He decides to pick Father Abraham and say, what about him? What does he say? What does his story tell us? Father Abraham, the supreme example in the Old Testament of what it means to live by faith, to be declared righteous by faith. It was Abraham to whom the Old Covenant was given. And it was to Abraham that the New Covenant was promised. The New Covenant that we now live under was promised to Abraham. In fact, God named himself the God of Abraham. Abraham is the supreme example of what it means to live and be declared righteous by faith and by faith alone. And so we're going to look and see what Father Abraham has to say in your defense. But before we get there, would you guys bow your heads and pray with me as we begin? Almighty God, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of all who believe, Father, we thank you for your patience and your endurance and your perseverance and your forbearance with us. We thank you for your son and the faith that you've given us so that we can hear your words this morning. And I pray that the words that I speak would be your words, that the thoughts in my head and the meditation of my heart would be truly pleasing in your sight, that you would use this time to mold us and shape us more into the image of your son. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. So he begins, and we turn to Father Abraham in Romans 4, chapter, chapter 4, verses 1 to 8. And this morning as I read, I'm going to be reading from the RSV version. You may not have that version, but you can certainly turn to it on your phone or follow along with me. But I believe it gives us a really good uh, language and a way to understand what's being said. Paul says, so what then shall we say about Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he was, has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Let me kind of rephrase that opening sentence that he says there to kind of give us a better understanding of what is said. He says, let me rephrase it. What then shall we say? that we have found Abraham to be our forefather only according to the flesh, is really what he's saying. So is Abraham only our forefather according to the flesh, that we're a descendant, that actually you can follow a line. And he's saying we, he's talking about himself and the Gentile Christians, because he's responding to the Jewish objector. He's saying, are we only in the bloodline? Is that how we're to consider Abraham to be? And we know that's what he's saying because this word forefather that he uses to describe Abraham is the only place in all of Scripture that Abraham is described that way. Everywhere else, Abraham is described as Father Abraham. Meaning in that spiritual line, not only in a bloodline, but in a spiritual sense. 
that we are connected to him because we share the same God. And Paul's saying, so are we, Paul himself and the Gentile Christians, only to be considered his descendants from a bloodline? It may not be through Jacob, it may not be through Isaac, but it might be through Esau and Ishmael. Is that the only way that Gentiles are to be considered? And he's like, and he goes on, for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. So if Abraham was truly justified by works, then he'd have something to boast about before men, like you. If you were justified by works, you would certainly have something to boast about before men, but not before God. And that's whose court we find ourselves in. Not man's court, but God's court. And in God's court, you have nothing to boast about. And then he does something brilliant. He says, for what does the scripture say? And just a side note, that should always be our response when asked a question. What does the Bible say? I know what I believe, but let's see what the Bible has to say. And that's exactly what Paul does here. And he turns back to this text in uh, Genesis 15 where he says, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Abraham is not just our forefather, he is our father because of faith, not because of works, but because of faith. And Paul turns back all the way to the beginning, to Abraham in chapter 15 in Genesis, and says, goes back to this promise that God makes to Abraham that night. Abraham's about 75 years old, and he promises Abraham, and he brings him outside, and he says, look up into the heavens. Look at all these stars and count them if you can. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And says, and he believed the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. God promises Abraham that your descendants, he make promises that he will make him a father of many nations, not just one nation, but many nations, and his descendants will be more numerous than the stars in the sky. And Abraham believes him. And that belief, that faith is reckoned to him as righteousness. It is credited to him as righteousness. That word there, reckoned, is sort of this financial accounting term, that it was counted, it was put into his account. It was credited to him. It was reckoned to him. It was given to him. It wasn't something that he earned. It was placed into his account. And it says Abraham believed that God would do this. Not that God could do this, but that God would do this. And he goes on to say, now to the one who works... His wages are not reckoned as a gift, but as his due. Of those of you that work and are paid for your work, do you consider those wages a gift? Or do you consider those wages due you for your work? Bonuses, are those a gift? No, those are in recognition of your hard work. Paul is saying, the wages you earn, if this were something that you did, then you would be due this payment. You would be due righteousness, but you haven't worked for any of it because there's not enough work that you could do to pay for it. And to the one who does not work, but trust him who justifies the godly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. It's only by faith. It's only to the one who doesn't work and understands that there's nothing they can do. 
that their faith is reckoned as righteousness. Again, he just keeps telling them, this is the case that God has against you. You're no different than the Gentile Christian. Everyone is declared righteous by faith alone. And then he goes on to another ancestor. He said, so also David, King David pronounces a blessing upon the man to whom God reckons righteousness apart from works. And he quotes back to Psalm 32. He says, Blessed are those whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not reckon his sin. Not only what your father Abraham says, but your father David. Here's what David says in Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man with whom the Lord imputes no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. There's something interesting that David does in this verse that Paul picks up on and Paul uses in his letter to the Romans. In, this, in these two verses, Paul uses this word sin, as you see sometimes maybe in your translation, translated as sin or maybe as forgiven or transgression and sin and iniquity. David actually uses three different words there to describe sin. That first word there, transgression, can be literally to mean lawlessness, without law, regard for nothing. I have no laws in my life, I'll I'll be the law to myself. And that second word, sin, in the Hebrew, the meaning there is godlessness. That I have no God. I myself am a God. I will follow my own law. And the final one, iniquity, is someone who turns away. Someone who turns away from God's path. And so if you look at that sort of like equation, it says the godless lawless man turning away from God. The literally sinful man. Blessed is he because his sins are forgiven, covered, and not reckoned against him. All three terms for sin are accounted for by three different understandings of what God does with sin. That first word is dismissed. Your sins are forgiven. They're dismissed. They're cast away from you. As far as the east is from the west, they've been cast away from you. That second word, covered, is exactly what it means. They've been covered up. They've been covered up by the blood of Jesus Christ, by the true atoning sacrifice, the only one that can truly cover our sins. We try to cover our sins, but they're always seen, but not as they lay under the blood of Christ because they've been covered up. And finally, they've not been reckoned. They've not been put into your account. God does not count your sins against you. David says, the most sinful person, godless, lawless, turning away person, blessed is he whose sins are forgiven. You sit here this morning and think, maybe... I could see why these sins, why this part of me, but I I have a hard time understanding how this thing in my life or this thing that continues in my life, how God could ever look upon me, how I could ever be considered righteous in God's sight. And David says, and Paul reiterates, you are blessed because God has given you faith and declared you righteous, you godless, lawless, turning away man constantly look for loopholes. Your sins have been forgiven. God has declared it. He's given you faith and declared you righteous. You've not earned it. 
Because if you were to reckon your sins against you, you'd have nowhere to stand. And David agrees that it is only by faith. And so Paul brings his second witness in to talk about the faith of Abraham. In fact, Paul says, you'd be a fool. You'd absolutely be a fool to want to be reckoned for your wages, what you work for. Because he says later, as we'll see in Romans 6, the wages of sin is death. The last thing you want is payment for your wages. And so David agrees with Abraham. And Paul agrees with David and Abraham. And so he's slowly working and whittling away the case of the objector. And, but he, goes and he continues in verses 9 through 12, which I've labeled on your card, Faith and Circumcision, because Paul continues, says, is this blessing, this blessing that David talks about, the blessing of God, is it only upon the circumcised? Is it only upon the Jew? Or is it also upon the uncircumcised? Is it also upon the Gentile? He says, we say that faith was reckoned to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it reckoned to him? How then was it credited to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? See, in Romans 15, or I'm sorry, in Genesis 15 is where God makes this promise to Abraham, and he makes a covenant that evening with Abraham and promises to do what he said he would do. He doesn't just say he'll do it. He makes a covenant with Abraham that evening. It wasn't until about 13, 14 years later that he gives Abraham a covenant of circumcision. It wasn't until 14 years later. So Abraham was made righteous that night, in Gen- in Gen- as we see in Genesis 15, He was declared righteous by his faith while he was uncircumcised, while he was yet to be circumcised. And that's why Paul says it was not after. That's not when it was reckoned to him as righteousness, but before he was circumcised. He received circumcision as a sign or a seal of the righteousness which he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Circumcision was not the point in which he was declared righteous. Circumcision was a seal. It was a sign, an outward visible sign of what God had already done in the heart of Abraham. It was a seal placed upon Abraham that he could count on, a visible, clear seal that he could see of God's promise and his inward action in the heart of himself. That seal was certainty. But that seal did not add anything that God hadn't already done. He was no more righteous. God had already declared him righteous some years earlier when his faith was reckoned to him as righteousness. It was not by the act of observing circumcision where the Jews had gotten it wrong. What Paul is saying is you believe God commands circumcision. You are, you're obedient to God and you, circ- you circumcise and then you offer that obedience to God. That's where they've made the mistake. That's where we make the mistake. Still today, some think of baptism in that same form, Matt. God commands baptism. We baptize and we offer ourselves to God in baptism. It's something that we do. And Paul is saying to them and to us, no, you don't get it. Circumcision is something that Abraham received from God for his benefit. Baptism is something we receive from God. It's what God is doing in the heart of the person baptized. 
And Paul tells us elsewhere that that Holy Spirit that we're given in the waters of our baptism is the seal on our hearts, marking us as one saved, as one redeemed by Christ the crucified. And it's in the waters, the visible signs that we can remember that God in that visible gospel speaks into the heart of the one that's baptized, as we learned last or two weeks ago in, in the first part of Romans, is that the gospel is spoken, and it's the power of salvation for all who believe, for the Jew and the Gentile. It's God's working in the heart. It's not something we do. It's something God is giving us. It's something we receive in the waters, and we must be clear about that. We don't make the same mistake that the Jewish people are making here. And he goes on to say, so the purpose of this, the purpose, the reason that he was declared righteous while uncircumcised was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised and who thus have righteousness reckoned to them. It was to mark him, it was to show that he was not just the father of the Jewish people, but he would be the father of all who believed and who have righteousness reckoned to them. And likewise, the father of the circumcised, who are not just merely circumcised, but also follow example of faith, which our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Abraham was the example for all men. He was God's working faith in the heart of Abraham, so we know that in all those who were circumcised and not circumcised, it was the same way for us, that we were to follow, follow his example. That God would always, always justify by faith. He goes on in verse 13 to 17. He says, The promise to Abraham and his descendants that they should inherit the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. The promise that Abraham received that was promised to him and his descendants that they should inherit the world, that through Abraham and the seed, that there would, be, there would come a Messiah, and he would come, and he would conquer the world. He would truly be the true conqueror. It was through that line that he would come. But not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. If it's adherents of the law who are the, to be the heirs, then faith is null and void, and there's nothing to be counted. If it's through the law, then all this talk about faith is just absolutely useless. He says, for the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. He says, righteousness is by faith alone. But the law, remember, brings nothing but wrath. We talked about that last week as Paul described the law. And he gives us the purpose for the law in, in chapter 3, verse 20, where it says it makes us conscious of our sin. That's the only purpose of the law. It's to make us aware that we're sinful. It doesn't declare us righteous by observing it. It doesn't lead us to repentance. It does none of those things. The only thing the law does is make us aware of sin. And the law constantly, constantly testifies to the anger of God, the righteous anger of God against all sin. Everywhere. That's the purpose of the law. And that's all this law does is bring us an awareness of God's anger, his wrath against sin. But he says, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. He says, 
So if you can find a place on this earth where there is no law, then you will find no transgression. Basically, there's no place on earth where there is no law. And the word he's using for law here is in that generic term, not in the Mosaic law, not in the law of Moses, but the law in general, because all law testifies to God's wrath. He's saying, if you can find a place on earth where there is no law, then there is no transgression, but there is no place. There's no place on earth where there is no law. Therefore, there is no place on earth where there is no sin. It is everywhere. And that is why he goes on in verse 16. That is why, because the law is everywhere, and all it does is testify to God's wrath, that righteousness depends upon faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace, on God's work, on God's love and mercy, and to be guaranteed to all his descendants. Make certain to all of his descendants, not just in the Jewish line, but all men, not only to the adherents of the law, but to those who share the faith of Abraham. For he, Abraham, is not just our forefather, he is the father of us all. Again, as it is written, as the scriptures tell us, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. That is why God made that promise to Abraham. So that Abraham would know with full certainty that he stood righteous before God. Because if he stood in his works, we see there is no certainty. It's only in faith that we can stand, as the writer of Hebrews says, before God without fear. Because we stand in the righteousness of Christ, not in our own works, not in our own righteousness. Because we know when we consider who we are, and in those thoughts consider standing before a righteous God, that has to terrify us when we're honest with ourselves. But Paul is saying, you can be certain just as Abraham was certain that this is exactly what God will do. He will declare you righteous because of the faith that he's given you. The only thing certain about the law is that we're lost and that we're sinners. And there is no hope in the law. That's all the law offers us. He goes on to say in verse 18, in hope, he believed against hope. In the hope that God gave him, he believed against his own hope, against his own thoughts, that he could become a father at such an old age, that he should become a father of many nations as he had been told. So shall your descendants be. Not so could your descendants be, but so shall your descendants be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body when he considered how old he was, he did, did not weaken his faith because his body was just as good as dead because he was about 100 years old when Isaac was born. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. As he recognized God's faithfulness, God's power, he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why faith was reckoned to him as righteousness. 
Abraham was convinced, as we saw back in 17, that God is a God who can bring dead things back to life, things into existence that did not exist. He knew that he could bring life into Sarah's womb and that the two of them would conceive and have a son at this old age. He believed that God could do that. Not only that, we see that he believed in the resurrection of the dead. Because the writer of Hebrews tells us later that he considered, he, Abraham, considered the fact that God is able to even raise someone from the dead. And figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. He's talking about how by faith, Abraham offered Isaac to God. Remember, back in Genesis, God asked Abraham to take Isaac up the mountain and to kill him as an offering. And that's exactly what Abraham did. And the writer of Hebrews puts us into Abraham's mind and says what what Abraham had figured was that God could bring him back. If I killed him, God could bring him back. And literally, that's exactly what God did. Because God said, stop, and he provided a ram and literally saved him from the knife. Abraham believed God could do anything. And it was that belief, it was that faith that God reckons as righteousness. It was that faith that Paul tells us was given to him by God as a gift. That same faith God has given to you in the waters of your baptism, that same faith God has given to you when he put the Holy Spirit in your heart. Do you know one of the certainty that you have in that faith? Do you believe God's promise? Then you can be fully certain of where you stand before God. Not because of who you are, not because of what you do, but because of what God has done. And you can sort of see this man who is objecting, sort of like sinking back into his seat. As he concludes, but the words, it was reckoned to him, were written not for his sake alone, not just for Abraham alone, but for ours also. It meaning righteousness, will be reckoned to us who believe in him. That raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was put to death for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Why did Paul explain this to that man? For our benefit, for our sake, so that we would know the promise which God made to Abraham. The promise that this objector is pointing to was made not just for this people, but for all people. And that God is faithful and honors his promises. You know, that night that God made that promise to Abraham, there in Genesis 15, he makes a covenant with Abraham. And he tells Abraham to go out and take these animals and cut them in half and lay them and make this aisle, laying half of the animal here and half of the animal here. And really, it's an old covenant practice that was in place that t- at that time where two people would make this covenant, this promise to one another, and they would take animals and they would cut them in half and they would lay them to the side. And then each man would walk between those pieces. And in walking between those pieces, they would make the statement that if I do not live up to my end of the bargain, you can do to me what you've done to these animals. And so when God instructs Abraham to do this, Abraham knows exactly what God is going to do. He's going to make this covenant with him. And so it says that Abraham sat around all night scaring away the birds that were trying to get at the carcasses. And he's laying it out, fully waiting for God to show up and them to make this covenant together. But he waits and he waits and he waits and he waits. And then later that night, he's woken by this fire pot 
this symbol of God, this fire pot that floats through the air and goes down through the pieces. And that's how it ends. And Abraham knows one thing there. He knows exactly what happened because he would have fully expected to be the first one to go through because the lesser man in the promise is the one asked to go first. But here it is, God himself going through the pieces. What's God saying to Abraham and to us? He's saying to Abraham, Abraham, if I don't keep my promise to you, make you a father of many nations and bring forth the Messiah of the entire world and solve this problem, you can do to me what's been done to these pieces. But by not asking Abraham to walk through, God is also saying something else to him and to us. He says, if you don't do what you've promised to do, you can do to me what you did to these pieces. God is promising right there that he will be punished for our sin. God himself And that's exactly what he did. As he says here at the end, he raised Jesus from the dead, our Lord, who put to death our trespasses so that we could be declared righteous. God keeps his promises. It is not by works, but by faith. And that promise extends to all who believe. And I believe Paul sort of like sits down at that point. But he doesn't stop there. Because as we'll see throughout the next coming weeks, Pastor Dan's here next week and says, so what does it mean for us? What does this mean for us? How does this change our relationship with God? And Paul will go on in later weeks to say, well, then what does that mean for us? How then should we live as this children of faith? How then does it change how we live and we act and we move and have our being here in this world? And what does it mean for the rest of the world? How do we participate in that? I want to encourage you to come back each and every week because Paul is not done with his defense of God. But I pray that you know more than ever today that it is not by your works. It is not because you are righteous. It is because God has declared you so, that you stand before him with all certainty. I pray that for Jesus' sake. Amen.